George Washington's Christmas Eve crossing of the Delaware River was a turning point in the Revolutionary War. And some people believe that the hand of God was involved. Now, it was supposed to be a surprise attack against the Hessian soldiers who were on the other side. They were quartered in the town of Trenton, but it was hard to keep a secret back then, just as it is now. Hessians had their spies, so they knew that Washington was coming. They didn't know the exact time, but they were ready for him. Historians suggest that if the Hessians had remained, they would have met Washington's forces and decimated them. The American Revolution would have met a premature end. But something very strange happened. Over and the Hessians, of course, they're German mercenaries that were hired by the British. On the Hessian side of the Delaware River, there were about a dozen farmers in the wee hours who rushed out of the woods and fired their muskets at point-blank range. They killed about a half a dozen Hessians, and then they faded back into the forest, and they were never heard from again. No one ever came forward to take credit for that attack. However, the Hessian commander concluded that Washington's forces had landed, they had attacked, they'd done their worst, and then they'd gone back. And so he allowed the bulk of his troops on that frigid night to return to Trenton in the, the homes in which they were quartered. So about two hours later, Washington's real army landed, took the Hessians by surprise, won the victory, got all of those supply, uh, supplies, and it was a pivot point. One historian has said the victory had a marked effect on the troops' morale. Soldiers celebrated the victory. Washington's role as a leader was secured, and Congress gained renewed enthusiasm for the war. So I mention that today because it's the 4th of July and also because it's a pivot point, and I want to talk about pivot points. We're going to look at a pivot point in the account of Esther. When everything shifts away from Haman, the enemy in the story, and toward Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. We'll spend the first few minutes here just going over the narrative, starting with Haman's rage being rekindled. Esther chapter 5 verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. So if you recall, when we last left Esther, she had given a second invitation to King Xerxes and to Haman to come to a banquet. So Haman is all excited about this. It strokes his ego, and he's something of an egomaniac. So yeah, he's in high spirits when he leaves, but when he sees Mordecai, Mordecai just gets under his skin. Mordecai will not give him any respect. It bothers him. So he goes straight home. He's talking to his wife and his friends. He's talking himself up, how important he is. He's second in command, one of the officials. He's been invited to these two banquets, but it's not long before he starts complaining about Mordecai. In verse 13, he says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So you might be able to relate to this. I mean, everybody can love you, but if there's one person over there who's against you, you kind of obsess about that. I know, for instance, I can get a lot of comments from the comment cards on the sermon, like, uh, Steve, good sermon. Steve, we love you. Steve, you should run for president. And these are all actual comments from comment cards. Now, and granted, most of them are from my own family, but... 
I can get one critical card, and you know which one I'm going to obsess over? I'm going to obsess over the one criticism. So poor Haman just wants everybody to love him, and Mordecai doesn't love him, and he's obsessed about that. So his wife and his friends give him some advice. They, they see how hard this is for him. They say, you're not even going to enjoy the banquet that you're going to while Mordecai is still alive. Just get rid of Mordecai. And they suggest that he build a gallows 75 feet high and hang Mordecai on the gallows before the banquet. Not even waiting for the edict that they had passed 11 months hence to wipe out all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia. By the way, when I say gallows, it's not hanging like we normally think of hanging. They impaled people. So they want to impale him on this pole 75 feet high, which was a ridiculous height. I mean, the, 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 where the king lived there, his own residence was only 45 feet high. They want this gallows to be 75 feet high. They not only want to execute Mordecai, they want to humiliate him. They want everybody to see him for miles around. Haman loves this idea. He's bloodthirsty anyway. This gets him re-energized. He gets some people and conscripts them to start building that gallows. Meanwhile, the king discovers his oversight. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So the king has insomnia. Now, he's, if you suffer from insomnia, the king's got a good remedy for this. He sends for the book of his life, the records, the official records of his life, and has it read to him. All right, that's like reading the phone book. Just read about your own life. So boring, guaranteed to put him to sleep. But it just so happens the reader turns to that spot where five years earlier, if you recall, if you've been with us for the series, Mordecai uncovered an assassination plot against King Xerxes. And Xerxes perks up, says, oh yeah. By the way, what was ever done for Mordecai? What reward did he receive? And the reader looks in there and says, I don't see where anything was done for Mordecai. So the king decides he's got to rectify that. He begins thinking of how he can reward Mordecai for saving his life. And so meanwhile, verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. The king says, bring him in. When Haman answered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, it's very interesting, kind of ironic. Neither one of these men could sleep that night. The king had insomnia. He could not sleep, so they're reading the record book. And apparently Haman could not sleep either. He was so excited about executing Mordecai that he goes to the palace in the wee hours of the night. But King Xerxes is thinking about how he can honor Mordecai. And Haman is thinking about how he can humiliate and execute Mordecai. So the king asked this question, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? He asked it in such a way he did not mention the man's name. And this allows the king and Haman, to have a conversation thinking about two entirely different people. So the king is thinking about Mordecai. Haman's thinking about Mordecai. Haman, of course, being the egomaniac, just assumes he's the man that the king wants to honor. It's like Abbott and Costello's who's on first. They are not talking about the same thing. So Mordecai thinking that he has the opportunity to prescribe his own aggrandizement, he goes for it. And in verse 7, he says, for the man the king delights to honor 
Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. All right. You can hardly think of a more self-indulgent prescription than this. The king's robe had an almost magical aura in that day. One commentator writes, Haman wants to masquerade as the king. Indeed, Haman wants to be the king. He already occupies the highest position at court. He is the person to whom everyone else must bow. He possesses the king's signet ring, authorizing him to make edicts. He's been invited by the queen to two private dinner parties. It is but a small step to the kingship itself, and Haman now tries to take it. Haman is so excited right now, he's forgotten why he originally came to the palace. It's like a little kid who's throwing a temper tantrum. And somebody puts a piece of cake in front of the kid. Now the kid is focused on the cake and forgets about the tantrum. Well, that's Haman. He's forgotten, but he's about to be reminded. And in verse 10, the king loves this idea. So the king Xerxes says, go at once, get the robe and the horse, do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Boom. Can you imagine the shock and awe for Haman? That he realizes now, it's not him, it's Mordecai who's being honored. But the king has said it, and he has to do it. He's the one. He's got to go get that robe, not for his own shoulders. He's got to drape it on Mordecai's shoulders. He's got to get that horse. Put Mordecai up on that horse. And all the time he's thinking, that should be me up on that horse. Of course it shouldn't, but that's the way he's thinking. And now he's leading that horse throughout Susa. This is what is done for the man the king desires to honor. And he's got to watch all those citizens giving that adulation to Mordecai. Just kills him. Kills him on the inside. And we read in verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Now, it's interesting right here, this would have been right at the end of the three days of fasting that Esther had called for. She's fasting, Mordecai's fasting, the Jews in Susa are fasting as they are in the Persian kingdom. That's coming to an end. They were wearing sackcloth, they had their heads covered in grief. Now, as that comes to an end, they uncover their heads, and Haman's head is now covered in grief. It's as if the grief of the Jews is shifting now, on to Haman. Haman goes home, verse 13. He told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened. And they said, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. They sense that this is not just by accident. These things are not just coincidences. There's something else at work. Or actually, there's someone else at work. Someone has said, coincidences are just God's way of remaining anonymous. So you have the hidden hand of God orchestrating these circumstances and these events, and they can see that. Now, so we have here a pivot point in this passage where everything shifts, the momentum shifts. 
Before this pivot point, Haman is joyful and glad. Afterward, his head is covered in grief. Before this pivot point, his wife and friends tell him, you will prevail over Mordecai. Afterwards, they say you will lose. Before this point, Haman is intent on executing Mordecai. Afterwards, he has to exalt Mordecai. Before this pivot point, he is in control and he manipulates the king. Afterwards, he is out of control. He must helplessly be drug away to Esther's next banquet. And in a wider sense, this is not just the pivot point for this passage. It's the pivot point for the entire, entire book of Esther. <clears throat> before it, before this point, there are three feasts. Afterwards, there are three feasts. Before this pivot point, this verse, there are 29 mentions of Susa. After, there are 29 mentions of Susa. Before it, Haman has the upper hand in every single chapter. Afterwards, Mordecai has the upper hand in every chapter. The entire structure of the book of Esther is designed to emphasize the pivot point. It is a chiasm. Now, we're all going to learn a new word today, except maybe Ann Martinelli. But most of us are going to learn a new word today. The word is chiasm. If you have your bulletin, take a look at it real quick. Uh, under the sermon notes, <clears throat> these are not the points that I'm making. These under the sermon notes is the structure, the chiasmic structure of the book of Esther. Now, let me read you the definition of a chiasm. It's an ancient narrative pattern of symmetrical arrangement in which the first event corresponds to the last event. And then the second event corresponds to the next to last event and so on. And the center of the chiasm is of paramount importance. The entire structure is to put emphasis on the center event. So if you look at that, and we've got a slide for it too for those who are live streaming. I don't think anybody here can see that, but you can see this. So you've got the A, for instance, at the top, the introduction, the extent of Xerxes' kingdom. A prime at the bottom, you have the conclusion and the extent of the kingdom. You've got B at the top, the two banquets held by the king. You've got the B prime at the bottom, two feasts for the Jews. The C, Esther taken to the king, she conceals her identity. C prime, Esther before the king, requests an additional day for the Jews to take vengeance on their enemies. You have E, the casting of the lot, determines the war on the 13th of Adar. You've got E prime, the war on the 13th of Adar. For each event, there's a corresponding event. It either corresponds or it turns around the previous event, all leading up to the pivot point and focusing on that pivot point. What is that pivot point? If you already figured it out, you can write it in, but it's a little bit surprising. The pivot point is Esther chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. That's the center of the whole book. It's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? It's the insomnia of the king. We might have hoped for something a little more seemingly significant. Maybe Esther's realization that she's come to royalty for such a time as this. That might be a good candidate, but it's something as mundane and ordinary as insomnia. But God can use the mundane and the ordinary to pivot and shift the momentum for world events. God can use the mundane and the ordinary in our lives. Might be good news for some of us who suffer from insomnia. God can use our insomnia. He can use our ordinary moments. In fact, because of the providence of God, there almost are no ordinary moments. The ordinary and the mundane is infused with the, is pregnant with potential of the providence of God.
Now, what I want us to see next is the connection between this pivot point and prayer and pivot points in general in prayer. And not to miss the fact, this pivot point we're talking about, the king's insomnia and what followed was set up by the groundwork that was laid through the fasting and prayer. Esther 4.16, if you'll recall, where Esther said, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Of course, the fasting always included prayer. We saw that last week. When we pray, God pivots. When we pray, God goes to work immediately. Immediately. I say, Steve, how can you say that? Let me show you a couple of verses here. Daniel 9, 23, for instance, God sends an angel to Daniel, and he says, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. As soon as you began to pray. Now, Daniel got this answer on the same day that he prayed. In the next chapter, however, Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, another angel comes to Daniel, and he says, since the first day you began to pray, your request has been heard in heaven. I've come in answer to your prayer. Daniel didn't perceive the answer to this prayer for 21 days after He'd begun to pray, but it had begun to be answered on the first day that he prayed. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. He told the story, then the conclusion of the story, God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night. He will grant justice to them when? Quickly, not slowly, but quickly. Now, some of you may be thinking, all right, Steve, uh, that all sounds well and good, but I've been praying about something for five years or for 10 years or longer. I I haven't seen the answer. How can you say God immediately begins to answer when we pray? Well, because sometimes God works upstream. And when God works upstream, it's out of sight. We may not perceive it. It may rarely be seen or it may never be seen by us. But it doesn't mean that God's not working. Now, a great example of this comes from the Old Testament. It's when Joshua and the Israelites were crossing the Jordan River to go into the promised land, take possession of the promised land. It happened like this. Joshua 3.15, as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up at a great distance away at a town called Adam. And then the rest of the water flowed away in the river. So if you visualize this, this is not a crossing like the Israelites under Moses crossing the Red Sea. The water stood up like walls on both sides. It's a sea. This is a river. So when they went across, the water stood up on one side of the river and flowed away on the other side. So the priests step into the water, water backs up and begins to flow away. They have to wait until it's all flowed away and then they go across. But the water is backing up 30 miles upstream. Now, can those priests and the Israelites see what's happening 30 miles upstream? No, they can't see that. In fact, I don't know how long it would have taken for the water to flow away, but it would have taken a long time. So the priests are standing there. I can just imagine they step into the water. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're waiting. The water is swirling around their ankles and their knees, and nothing seems to be happening. I can almost imagine them looking back at Joshua Joshua, nothing's happening. Do you happen to have Moses' rod with you? Maybe you should wave that around a little bit and let's get something going on. But something was happening and God was working. He was just working upstream out of sight and they believed that by faith. The opposite of faith is not reason or logic. The opposite of faith is sight. 
And likewise, God works upstream in our lives. This was a pivot point for Joshua. Joshua 4.14, that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all the people, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life. So the leadership shifted that day from Moses to Joshua, and they accepted him as their new leader. And the groundwork, once again, for this pivot point was laid in prayer. Joshua 3.5, as they prepared for the crossing. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things. The word for consecrate there in the Hebrew is kedar. It means to confess sin. It means to cry out to God in prayer. That's how they were consecrating themselves, through prayer. Prayer lays the groundwork for the pivot point. We pray and God pivots. Theologian Jack Coulter writes, even before God created this universe, he already knew every prayer that would ever be uttered. Even when he was able to decide which prayers he would answer and how he would answer them, from the beginning, he has known them and has known what he has planned to do about them. Answers to prayers are prearranged according to God's foreknowledge. And this shows that even though our prayers do not change God's mind, they do influence what God decides to do. So, when did God begin to answer the three days of fasting and prayer of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews in the Persian Empire? When did he begin to answer that prayer? I suggest that God began to answer that prayer five years upstream before they prayed it. Not upstream spatially or geographically, but upstream in time. Way back here when Vashti the queen was deposed and there needed to be a new queen. Way back when they had the queen contest and Esther won the favor of the eunuch who was in charge of the virgins. And then Esther won the favor of the king Xerxes. And then Esther was chosen to be the queen. God was answering that prayer. And way back here when Mordecai uncovered the assassination plot against Xerxes and it was recorded in the king's record book, but there was no reward at that time, God was answering their prayer five years upstream before they ever prayed the prayer. Now, if that's true, then the answer to our prayers are in process before we even pray them. Because our omniscient God, in his foreknowledge, knew what you were going to pray and when you were going to pray it. Archimedes says, if you give me a lever and a place to stand, I can move the world. We have that lever. That lever is prayer. The place to stand is our faith. The fulcrum is God. Dick Eastman, in his book on prayer, says that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty muscles of God. He says, prayer can do everything that God can do. We pray, God pivots. When you left your house this morning, did you think to prayer, to pray? Are we praying? Are we using our lever for the pivot points in our lives, our family lives, and the lives of God's kingdom. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what you did for Esther. We thank you that it is recorded for us. We see now how everything shifted according to your will and what you did and your power, but also because people fasted and prayed and cried out to you. We pray, God, that we can have a renewed sense of the importance and urgency of prayer in our lives. We know and believe that you are working even though we don't necessarily see it. We believe it by faith. You are working upstream in our lives, unseen circumstances, unseen in the past, but still your hand of providence, working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.